Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Chapter 17 of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Read for LibriVox by Karen Savage. Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island. Chapter 17. A Letter from Davy. It's beginning to snow, girls, said Phil, coming in one November evening, and there are the loveliest little stars and crosses all over the garden walk. I never noticed before what exquisite things snowflakes really are. One has time to notice things like that in the simple life. Bless you all for permitting me to live it. It's really delightful to feel worried because butter has gone up five cents a pound. Has it? demanded Stella, who kept the household accounts. It has, and here's your butter. I'm getting quite expert at marketing. It's better fun than flirting," concluded Phil gravely. "'Everything is going up scandalously,' sighed Stella. "'Never mind. Thank goodness air and salvation are still free,' said Aunt Jamesina. "'And so is laughter,' added Anne. "'There's no tax on it yet, and that is well, because you're all going to laugh presently. I'm going to read you Davy's letter. His spelling has improved immensely this past year, though he's not strong at apostrophes, and he certainly possesses the gift of writing an interesting letter. Listen and laugh before we settle down to the evening's study-grind. Dear Anne, ran Davy's letter, I take my pen to tell you that we are all pretty well and hope this will find you the same. It's snowing some today and Marilla says the old woman in the sky is shaking her feather-beds. Is the old woman in the sky God's wife, Anne? I want to know. Mrs. Lynde has been real sick, but she is better now. She fell down the cellar stairs last week. When she fell she grabbed hold of the shelf with all the milk-pails and stew-pans on it, and it gave way and went down with her and made a splendid crash. Marilla thought it was an earthquake at first. One of the stew-pans was all dinged up, and Mrs. Lynde strained her ribs. The doctor came and gave her medicine to rub on her ribs, but she didn't understand him and took it all inside instead. The doctor said it was a wonder it didn't kill her, but it didn't, and it cured her ribs, and Mrs. Lynde says doctors don't know much anyhow. But we couldn't fix up the stew-pan. Marilla had to throw it out. Thanksgiving was last week. There was no school and we had a great dinner. I ate mince pie and roast turkey and fruit cake and doughnuts and cheese and jam and chocolate cake. Marilla said I'd die, but I didn't. Dora had earache after it, only it wasn't in her ears, it was in her stomach. I didn't have earache anywhere. Our new teacher is a man. He does things for jokes. Last week he made all us third-class boys write a composition on what kind of a wife we'd like to have and the girls on what kind of a husband. He laughed fit to kill when he read them. This was mine. I thought you'd like to see it. The kind of a wife I'd like to have. She must have good manners and get my meals on time and do what I tell her and always be very polite to me. She must be fifteen years old. She must be good to the poor and keep her house tidy and be good-tempered and go to church regularly. She must be very handsome and have curly hair. If I get a wife that is just what I like, it'll be an awful good husband to her. I think a woman ought to be awful good to her husband. Some poor women haven't any husbands. The end. I was at Mrs. Isaac Wright's funeral at White Sands last week. The husband of the corpse felt real sorry. Mrs. Lynde says Mrs. Wright's grandfather stole a sheep, but Marilla says we mustn't speak ill of the dead. Why mustn't we, Anne? I want to know. It's pretty safe, ain't it? Mrs. Lynde was awful mad the other day because I asked her if she was alive in Noah's time. I didn't mean to hurt her feelings. I just wanted to know. Was she, Anne? 
Mr. Harrison wanted to get rid of his dog, so he hunged him once, but he come to life and scooted for the barn while Mr. Harrison was digging the grave, so he hunged him again, and he stayed dead that time. Mr. Harrison has a new man working for him. He's awful awkward. Mr. Harrison says he is left-handed in both his feet. Mr. Barry's hired man is lazy. Mrs. Barry says that, but Mr. Barry says he ain't lazy exactly, only he thinks it easier to pray for things than to work for them. Mrs. Harmon Andrews' prize pig that she talked so much of died in a fit. Mrs. Lynde says it was a judgment on her for pride, but I think it was hard on the pig. Milty Bolter has been sick. The doctor gave him medicine and it tasted horrid. I offered to take it for him for a quarter, but the Bolters are so mean. Milty says he'd rather take it himself and save his money. I asked Mrs. Bolter how a person would go about catching a man, and she got awful mad, and said she didn't know. She had never chased men. The Avis is going to paint the hall again. They're tired of having it blue. The new minister was here to tea last night. He took three pieces of pie. If I did that, Mrs. Lynde would call me Piggy. And he ate fast and took big bites of Marilla's, always telling me not to do that. Why can ministers do what boys can't? I want to know. I haven't any more news. Here are six kisses. X, 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 X. Dora sends one. Here's hers. X. Your loving friend, David Keith. P.S. Anne, who is the devil's father? I want to know. End of chapter 17 all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter 18 of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Read for LibriVox by Karen Savage. Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island. Chapter 18. Miss Josephine Remembers the Anne Girl. When Christmas holidays came, the girls of Patty's place scattered to their respective homes, but Aunt Jamesina elected to stay where she was. "'I couldn't go to any of the places I've been invited and take those three cats,' she said, "'and I'm not going to leave the poor creatures here alone for nearly three weeks. If we had any decent neighbors who would feed them, I might, but there's nothing except millionaires on this street. So I'll stay here and keep Patty's place warm for you.' Anne went home with the usual joyous anticipations, which were not wholly fulfilled. She found Avonlea in the grip of such an early, cold, and stormy winter as even the oldest inhabitant could not recall. Green Gables was literally hemmed in by huge drifts. Almost every day of that ill-starred vacation it stormed fiercely, and even on fine days it drifted unceasingly. No sooner were the roads broken than they filled in again. It was almost impossible to stir out. The Avis tried on three evenings to have a party in honor of the college students, and on each evening the storm was so wild that nobody could go, so they gave up the attempt in despair. Anne, despite her love of and loyalty to Green Gables, could not help thinking longingly of Patty's place, its cozy open fire, Aunt Jamesina's mirthful eyes, the three cats, the merry chatter of the girls, the pleasantness of Friday evenings when college friends dropped in to talk of grave and gay. Anne was lonely. Diana, during the whole of the holidays, was imprisoned at home with a bad attack of bronchitis. She could not come to Green Gables, and it was rarely Anne could get to Orchard Slope, for the old way through the haunted woods was impassable with drifts, and the long way over the frozen lake of shining waters was almost as bad. Ruby Gillis was sleeping in the white-heaped graveyard. Jane Andrews was teaching a school on western prairies. Gilbert, to be sure, was still faithful and waded up to Green Gables every possible evening. But Gilbert's visits were not what they once were. Anne almost dreaded them. It was very disconcerting to look up in the midst of a sudden silence and find Gilbert's hazel eyes fixed upon her, with a quite unmistakable expression in their grave depths. And it was still more disconcerting to find herself blushing hotly and uncomfortably under his gaze, just as if—just as if—well, it was very embarrassing. 
Anne wished herself back at Patty's place, where there was always somebody else about to take the edge off a delicate situation. At Green Gables, Marilla went promptly to Mrs. Lynde's domain when Gilbert came, and insisted on taking the twins with her. The significance of this was unmistakable, and Anne was in a helpless fury over it. Davy, however, was perfectly happy. He reveled in getting out in the morning and shoveling out the paths to the well and the henhouse. He gloried in the Christmas-tide delicacies which Marilla and Mrs. Lynde vied with each other in preparing for Anne, and he was reading an enthralling tale in a school library book of a wonderful hero who seemed blessed with a miraculous faculty for getting into scrapes from which he was usually delivered by an earthquake or a volcanic explosion, which blew him high and dry out of his troubles, landed him in a fortune, and closed the story with proper éclat. "'I tell you, it's a bully story, Anne,' he said ecstatically. "'I'd ever so much read it than the Bible.' "'Would you?' smiled Anne. Davy peered curiously at her. "'You don't seem a bit shocked, Anne.' Mrs. Lynde was awful shocked when I said it to her. No, I'm not shocked, Davy. I think it's quite natural that a nine-year-old boy would sooner read an adventure story than the Bible. But when you are older, I hope and think that you will realize what a wonderful book the Bible is. Oh, some parts of it are fine, conceded Davy. That story about Joseph now, it's bully. But if I'd been Joseph, I wouldn't have forgiven the brothers. No siree, Anne. I'd have cut all their heads off. Mrs. Lynde was awful mad when I said that and shut the Bible up and said she'd never read me any more of it if I talked like that. So I don't talk now when she reads it Sunday afternoons. I just think things and say them to Milty Bolter next day in school. I told Milty the story about Elisha and the bears, and it scared him so he's never made fun of Mr. Harrison's bald head once. Are there any bears on P.E. Island, Anne? I want to know. Not nowadays, said Anne absently as the wind blew a scud of snow against the window. Oh, dear, will it ever stop storming? "'God knows,' said Davy airily, preparing to resume his reading. Anne was shocked this time. "'Davy!' she exclaimed reproachfully. "'Mrs. Lynde says that,' protested Davy. "'One night last week Marilla said, "'Will Ludovic Speed and Theodora Dix ever get married?' "'And Mrs. Lynde said, "'God knows, just like that.' "'Well, it wasn't right for her to say it,' said Anne, "'promptly deciding upon which horn of this dilemma to impale herself. "'It isn't right for anybody to take that name in vain "'or speak it lightly, Davy. "'Don't ever do it again.' "'Not if I say it slow and solemn like the minister?' queried Davy gravely. "'No, not even then.' "'Well, I won't. "'Ludovic Speed and Theodora Dix live in Middle Grafton, and Mrs. Rachel says he's been courting her for a hundred years. Won't they soon be too old to get married, Anne?' "'I hope Gilbert won't court you that long. When are you going to be married, Anne? Mrs. Lynde says it's a sure thing.' "'Mrs. Lynde is a—' began Anne hotly, then stopped. "'Awful old gossip,' completed Davy calmly. "'That's what everyone calls her. "'But is it a sure thing, Anne? "'I want to know.' "'You're a very silly little boy, Davy,' said Anne, "'stalking haughtily out of the room. "'The kitchen was deserted, "'and she sat down by the window "'in the fast-falling, wintry twilight. "'The sun had set, and the wind had died down. "'A pale, chilly moon looked out "'behind a bank of purple clouds in the west. "'The sky faded out.' but the strip of yellow along the western horizon grew brighter and fiercer, as if all the stray gleams of light were concentrating in one spot. The distant hills, rimmed with priest-like firs, stood out in dark distinctness against it. Anne looked across the still, white fields, cold and lifeless in the harsh light of that grim sunset, and sighed. She was very lonely, and she was sad at heart, for she was wondering if she would be able to return to Redmond next year. It did not seem likely. The only scholarship possible in the sophomore year was a very small affair. She would not take Marilla's money, and there seemed little prospect of being able to earn enough in the summer vacation. "'I suppose I'll just have to drop out next year,' she thought drearily, 
and teach a district school again until I earn enough to finish my course. And by that time, all my old class will have graduated, and Patty's place will be out of the question. But there, I'm not going to be a coward. I'm thankful I can earn my way through if necessary. "'Here's Mr. Harrison waiting up the lane,' announced Davy, running out. "'I hope he's brought the mail. It's three days since we got it. I want to see what them pesky grits are doing. I'm a conservative, Anne. And I tell you, you have to keep your eye on them grits.' Mr. Harrison had brought the mail, and merry letters from Stella and Priscilla and Phil soon dissipated Anne's blues. Aunt Jamesina, too, had written, saying that she was keeping the hearth fire alight, and that the cats were all well, and the house plants doing fine. "'The weather has been real cold,' she wrote. "'So I let the cats sleep in the house. Rusty and Joseph on the sofa in the living-room, and the Sarah-cat on the foot of my bed. It's real company to hear her purring when I wake up in the night and think of my poor daughter in the foreign field.' If it was anywhere but in India, I wouldn't worry. But they say the snakes out there are terrible. It takes all the Sarah Cat's purring to drive away the thought of those snakes. I have enough faith for everything but the snakes. I can't think why Providence ever made them. Sometimes I don't think he did. I am inclined to believe the old Harry had a hand in making them. Anne had left a thin typewritten communication till the last, thinking it unimportant. When she had read it, she sat very still, with tears in her eyes. "'What is the matter, Anne?' asked Marilla. "'Miss Josephine Barry is dead,' said Anne in a low tone. "'So she has gone at last,' said Marilla. "'Well, she has been sick for over a year, and the Barrys have been expecting to hear of her death any time. It is well she is at rest, for she has suffered dreadfully, Anne. She was always kind to you. She has been kind to the last, Marilla. This letter is from her lawyer. She has left me a thousand dollars in her will.' "'Gracious! Ain't Dad an awful lot of money?' exclaimed Davy. "'She's the woman you and Diana lit on when you jumped into the spare-room bed, ain't she?' Diana told me that story. Is that why she loved you so much?" "'Hush, Davy,' said Anne gently. She slipped away to the porch gable with a full heart, leaving Marilla and Mrs. Lynde to talk over the news to their heart's content. "'Do you suppose Anne will ever get married now?' speculated Davy anxiously. When Dorcas Sloane got married last summer, she said if she'd had enough money to live on, she'd never have been bothered with a man, but even a widower with eight children was better than living with a sister-in-law. "'Davy Keith, do hold your tongue,' said Mrs. Rachel severely. "'The way you talk is scandalous for a small boy, that's what.'" End of chapter 18 All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter 19 of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery Read for LibriVox by Karen Savage Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island, Chapter 19 An Interlude to think that this is my twentieth birthday, and that I've left my teens behind me forever," said Anne, who was curled up on the hearth-rug with Rusty in her lap, to Aunt Jamesina, who was reading in her pet chair. They were alone in the living-room. Stella and Priscilla had gone to a committee meeting, and Phil was upstairs adorning herself for a party. "'I suppose you feel kind of sorry,' said Aunt Jamesina. "'The teens are such a nice part of life. I'm glad I've never gone out of them myself.' Anne laughed. You never will, Auntie. You'll be eighteen when you should be a hundred. Yes, I am sorry, and a little dissatisfied as well. Miss Stacy told me long ago that by the time I was twenty my character would be formed, for good or evil. I don't feel that it's what it should be. It's full of flaws. So is everybody's, said Aunt Jamesina cheerfully. Mine's cracked in a hundred places. Your Miss Stacy likely meant that when you are twenty your character would have got its permanent bent in one direction or t'other, and would go on developing in that line. Don't worry over it, Anne. Do your duty by God and your neighbor and yourself, and have a good time. That's my philosophy, and it's always worked pretty well. Where's Phil off to tonight? She's going to a dance, and she's got the sweetest dress for it. 
Creamy yellow silk and cobwebby lace. It just suits those brown tints of hers. There's magic in the words silk and lace, isn't there? said Aunt Jamesina. The very sound of them makes me feel like skipping off to a dance. And yellow silk! It makes one think of a dress of sunshine. I always wanted a yellow silk dress. But first my mother and then my husband wouldn't hear of it. The very first thing I'm going to do when I get to heaven is to get a yellow silk dress." Amid Anne's peal of laughter Phil came downstairs, trailing clouds of glory, and surveyed herself in the long oval mirror on the wall. "'A flattering looking-glass is a promoter of amiability,' she said. "'The one in my room does certainly make me green. Do I look pretty nice, Anne?' "'Do you really know how pretty you are, Phil?' asked Anne in honest admiration. "'Of course I do. What are looking-glasses and men for? That wasn't what I meant. Are all my ends tucked in? Is my skirt straight? And would this rose look better lower down? I'm afraid it's too high. It will make me look lopsided. But I hate things tickling my ears. Everything is just right, and that southwest dimple of yours is lovely. And there's one thing in particular I like about you. You're so ungrudging. There isn't a particle of envy in you. Why should she be envious? demanded Aunt Jamesina. She's not quite as good-looking as you, maybe, but she's got a far handsomer nose. I know it, conceded Phil. My nose always has been a great comfort to me, confessed Anne. And I love the way your hair grows on your forehead, Anne. And that one wee curl, always looking as if it were going to drop, but never dropping, is delicious. But as for noses, mine is a dreadful worry to me. I know by the time I'm forty it will be burning. What do you think I'll look like when I'm forty, Anne? Like an old matronly married woman, teased Anne. I won't, said Phil, sitting down comfortably to wait for her escort. Joseph, you calico beastie, don't you dare jump on my lap. I won't go to a dance all over cat hairs. No, Anne, I won't look matronly, but no doubt I'll be married. To Alec or Alonzo? asked Anne. To one of them, I suppose, sighed Phil, if I can ever decide which. It shouldn't be hard to decide, scolded Aunt Jamesina. I was born a seesaw, Auntie, and nothing can ever prevent me from teetering. You ought to be more level-headed, Philippa. It's best to be level-headed, of course, agreed Philippa, but you miss lots of fun. As for Alec and Alonzo, if you knew them, you'd understand why it's difficult to choose between them. They're equally nice. Then take somebody who is nicer, suggested Aunt Jamesina. There's that senior who is so devoted to you, Will Leslie. He has such nice, large, mild eyes. They're a little bit too large and too mild, like a cow's, said Phil cruelly. What do you say about George Parker? There's nothing to say about him except that he always looks as if he had just been starched and ironed. Mar Holworthy, then. You can't find a fault with him. No, he would do if he wasn't poor. I must marry a rich man, Aunt Jamesina. That and good looks is an indispensable qualification. I'd marry Gilbert Blythe if he were rich. Oh, would you? said Anne, rather viciously. We don't like that idea a little bit, although we don't want Gilbert ourselves. Oh, no, mocked Phil. But don't let's talk of disagreeable subjects. I'll have to marry sometime, I suppose, but I shall put off the evil day as long as I can. You mustn't marry anybody you don't love, Phil, when all's said and done, said Aunt Jamesina. Oh, hearts that loved in the good old way have been out of the fashion this many a day, trilled Phil mockingly. There's the carriage. I fly. Bye-bye, you two old-fashioned darlings. When Phil had gone, Aunt Jamesina looked solemnly at Anne. That girl is pretty and sweet and good-hearted. But do you think she is quite right in her mind by spells, Anne? Oh, I don't think there's anything the matter with Phil's mind, said Anne, hiding a smile. It's just her way of talking. Aunt Jamesina shook her head. Well, I hope so, Anne. I do hope so, because I love her. But I can't understand her. She beats me. She isn't like any of the girls I ever knew, or any of the girls I was myself. 
How many girls were you, Aunt Jimsy? About half a dozen, my dear. End of chapter 19. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter 20 of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Read for LibriVox by Karen Savage. Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island, Chapter 20. Gilbert Speaks. This has been a dull, prosy day, yawned Phil, stretching herself idly on the sofa, having previously dispossessed two exceedingly indignant cats. Anne looked up from Pickwick papers. Now that spring examinations were over, she was treating herself to Dickens. "'It has been a prosy day for us,' she said thoughtfully. "'But to some people it has been a wonderful day. Someone has been rapturously happy in it. Perhaps a great deed has been done somewhere today, or a great poem written, or a great man born. And some heart has been broken, Phil. "'Why did you spoil your pretty thought by tagging that last sentence on, honey?' grumbled Phil. "'I don't like to think of broken hearts, or anything unpleasant.' Do you think you'll be able to shirk unpleasant things all your life, Phil? Dear me, no. Am I not up against them now? You don't call Alec and Alonzo pleasant things, do you, when they simply plague my life out? You never take anything seriously, Phil. Why should I? There are enough folks who do. The world needs people like me, Anne, just to amuse it. It would be a terrible place if everybody were intellectual and serious and in deep, deadly earnest. My mission is, as Josiah Allen says, to charm and allure. Confess now. Hasn't life at Patty's place been really much brighter and pleasanter this past winter because I've been here to leaven you? Yes, it has, owned Anne. And you all love me, even Aunt Jamesina, who thinks I'm stark mad. So why should I try to be different? Oh, dear, I'm so sleepy. I was awake until one last night, reading a harrowing ghost story. I read it in bed, and after I had finished it, do you suppose I could get out of bed to put the light out? No. And if Stella had not fortunately come in late, that lamp would have burned good and bright till morning. When I heard Stella, I called her in, explained my predicament, and got her to put out the light. If I had got out myself to do it, I knew something would grab me by the feet when I was getting in again. By the way, Anne, has Aunt Jamesina decided what to do this summer? Yes, she's going to stay here. I know she's doing it for the sake of those blessed cats, although she says it's too much trouble to open her own house and she hates visiting. What are you reading? Pickwick? That's a book that always makes me hungry, said Phil. There's so much good eating in it. The characters seem always to be reveling on ham and eggs and milk punch. I generally go on a cupboard rummage after reading Pickwick. The mere thought reminds me that I'm starving. Is there any tidbit in the pantry, Queen Anne? I made a lemon pie this morning. You may have a piece of it. Phil dashed out to the pantry, and Anne betook herself to the orchard in company with Rusty. It was a moist, pleasantly odorous night in early spring. The snow was not quite all gone from the park. A little dingy bank of it yet lay under the pines of the harbour road, screened from the influence of April suns. It kept the harbour road muddy and chilled the evening air. But grass was growing green in sheltered spots, and Gilbert had found some pale sweet arbutus in a hidden corner. He came up from the park, his hands full of it. Anne was sitting on the big grey boulder in the orchard, looking at the poem of a bare birchen bough hanging against the pale red sunset with the very perfection of grace. She was building a castle in air, a wondrous mansion whose sunlit courts and stately halls were steeped in Araby's perfume, and where she reigned queen and chatelaine. She frowned as she saw Gilbert coming through the orchard. Of late she had managed not to be left alone with Gilbert, but he had caught her fairly now, and even Rusty had deserted her. 
Gilbert sat down beside her on the boulder and held out his mayflowers. "'Don't these remind you of home and our old school-day picnics, Anne?' Anne took them and buried her face in them. "'I'm in Mr. Silas Sloane's barrens this very minute,' she said rapturously. "'I suppose you will be there in reality in a few days?' "'No, not for a fortnight. I'm going to visit Phil in Bolingbroke before I go home. You'll be in Avonlea before I will.' "'No, I shall not be in Avonlea at all this summer, Anne. I've been offered a job in the Daily News office, and I'm going to take it.' "'Oh,' said Anne vaguely. She wondered what a whole Avonlea summer would be like without Gilbert. Somehow she did not like the prospect. "'Well,' she concluded flatly, "'it is a good thing for you, of course.' "'Yes. I've been hoping I would get it. It will help me out next year.' "'You mustn't work too hard,' said Anne, without any very clear idea of what she was saying. She wished desperately that Phil would come out. "'You've studied very constantly this winter. Isn't this a delightful evening? Do you know, I found a cluster of white violets under that old twisted tree over there today. I felt as if I had discovered a gold mine.' "'You're always discovering gold mines,' said Gilbert, also absently. "'Let us go and see if we can find some more,' suggested Anne eagerly. "'I'll call Phil and—never mind Phil and the violets just now, Anne,' said Gilbert quietly, taking her hand in a clasp from which she could not free it. "'There is something I want to say to you.' "'Oh, don't say it,' cried Anne pleadingly. "'Don't, please, Gilbert.' "'I must. Things can't go on like this any longer. Anne, I love you. You know I do. I—I I can't tell you how much. Will you promise me that some day you'll be my wife?' "'I can't,' said Anne miserably. "'Oh, Gilbert, you—you've spoiled everything.' "'Don't you care for me at all?' Gilbert asked after a very dreadful pause, during which Anne had not dared to look up. "'Not—not not in that way. I do care a great deal for you as a friend, but I don't love you, Gilbert.' "'But can't you give me some hope that you will yet?' "'No, I can't,' exclaimed Anne desperately. "'I never, never can love you in that way, Gilbert.' You must never speak of this to me again." There was another pause, so long and so dreadful that Anne was driven at last to look up. Gilbert's face was white to the lips, and his eyes—but Anne shuddered and looked away. There was nothing romantic about this. Must proposals be either grotesque or horrible? Could she ever forget Gilbert's face? "'Is there anybody else?' he asked at last in a low voice. "'No, no,' said Anne eagerly. I don't care for anyone like that. And I like you better than anyone else in the world, Gilbert. And we must—we must go on being friends, Gilbert." Gilbert gave a bitter little laugh. <laughs> friends! Your friendship can't satisfy me, Anne. I want your love. And you tell me I can never have that. I'm sorry. Forgive me, Gilbert, was all Anne could say. Where, oh, where, were all the gracious and graceful speeches wherewith, in imagination, she had been wont to dismiss rejected suitors? Gilbert released her hand gently. There isn't anything to forgive. There have been times when I thought you did care. I've deceived myself, that's all. Goodbye, Anne. Anne got herself to her room, sat down on her window seat behind the pines, and cried bitterly. She felt as if something incalculably precious had gone out of her life. It was Gilbert's friendship, of course. Oh, why must she lose it after this fashion? "'What is the matter, honey?' asked Phil, coming in through the moonlit gloom. Anne did not answer. At that moment she wished Phil were a thousand miles away. "'I suppose you've gone and refused Gilbert Blythe. You are an idiot, Anne Shirley.' "'Do you call it idiotic to refuse to marry a man I don't love?' said Anne, coldly, goaded to reply. 
You don't know love when you see it. You've tricked something out with your imagination that you think love, and you expect the real thing to look like that. There. That's the first sensible thing I've ever said in my life. I wonder how I managed it. Phil, pleaded Anne, please go away and leave me alone for a little while. My world has tumbled into pieces. I want to reconstruct it. Without any Gilbert in it, said Phil, going. A world without any Gilbert in it. Anne repeated the words drearily. Would it not be a very lonely, forlorn place? Well, it was all Gilbert's fault. He had spoiled their beautiful comradeship. She must just learn to live without it. End of chapter 20 All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter 21 of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery Read for LibriVox.org by Karen Savage Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island, Chapter 21 Roses of Yesterday the fortnight Anne spent in Bolingbroke was a very pleasant one, with a little undercurrent of vague pain and dissatisfaction running through it whenever she thought about Gilbert. There was not, however, much time to think about him. Mount Holly, the beautiful old Gordon homestead, was a very gay place, overrun by Phil's friends of both sexes. There was quite a bewildering succession of drives, dances, picnics, and boating parties, all expressively lumped together by Phil under the head of jamborees. Alec and Alonzo were so constantly on hand that Anne wondered if they ever did anything but dance attendance on that will-o'-the-wisp of a Phil. They were both nice, manly fellows, but Anne would not be drawn into any opinion as to which was the nicer. "'And I depended so on you to help me make up my mind which of them I should promise to marry,' mourned Phil. "'You must do that for yourself. You are quite expert at making up your mind as to whom other people should marry,' retorted Anne, rather caustically. "'Oh, that's a very different thing,' said Phil truly." But the sweetest incident of Anne's sojourn in Bolingbroke was the visit to her birthplace, the little shabby yellow house in an out-of-the-way street she had so often dreamed about. She looked at it with delighted eyes as she and Phil turned in at the gate. "'It's almost exactly as I've pictured it,' she said. "'There's no honeysuckle over the windows, but there is a lilac tree by the gate. And yes, there are muslin curtains in the windows. How glad I am it is still painted yellow!' A very tall, very thin woman opened the door. "'Yes, the Shirleys lived here twenty years ago,' she said in answer to Anne's question. "'They had it rented. I remember em. They both died of fever at once. It was terrible sad. They left a baby. I guess it's dead long ago. It was a sickly thing. Old Thomas and his wife took it, as if they hadn't enough of their own.' "'It didn't die,' said Anne, smiling. "'I was that baby.' "'You don't say so. Why, you have grown,' exclaimed the woman, as if she were much surprised that Anne was not still a baby. "'Come to look at you, I see the resemblance. You're complected like your pa. He had red hair. But you favor your ma and your eyes and mouth. She was a nice little thing. My daughter went to school to her and was nigh crazy about her. They was buried in the one grave when the school board put up a tombstone to them as a reward for faithful service. Will you come in?' "'Will you let me go all over the house?' asked Anne eagerly. "'Laws, yes, you can, if you like. Don't take you long. There ain't much of it. I keep it my man to build a new kitchen, but he ain't one of your hustlers.' The parlor's in there, and there's two rooms upstairs. Just prowl about yourselves. I've got to see to the baby. The east room was the one you were born in. I remember your ma saying she loved to see the sunrise. And I mind hearing that you was born just as the sun was rising, and its light on your face was the first thing your ma saw. Anne went up the narrow stairs and into that little east room with a full heart. It was as a shrine to her. Here her mother had dreamed the exquisite happy dreams of anticipated motherhood. 
Here that red sunrise light had fallen over them both in the sacred hour of birth. Here her mother had died. Anne looked about her reverently, her eyes filled with tears. It was for her one of the jeweled hours of that life that gleam out radiantly forever in memory. "'Just to think of it. Mother was younger than I am now when I was born,' she whispered. When Anne went downstairs, the lady of the house met her in the hall. She held out a dusty little packet tied with faded blue ribbon. "'Here's a bundle of old letters I found in that closet upstairs when I came here,' she said. "'I don't know what they are. I never bothered to look in em, but the address on the top one is Miss Bertha Willis, and that was your ma's maiden name. You can take em if you care to have em. "'Oh, thank you, thank you!' cried Anne, clasping the packet rapturously. "'That was all that was in the house,' said her hostess. The furniture was all sold to pay the doctor bills, and Mrs. Thomas got your ma's clothes and little things. I reckon they didn't last long among that drove of Thomas youngsters. They was destructive young animals, as I mind em. "'I haven't one thing that belonged to my mother,' said Anne chokily. "'I—I can never thank you enough for these letters.' "'You're quite welcome. Laws, but your eyes is like your ma's. She could just about talk with hers. Your father was sort of homely, but awful nice. I mind hearing folks say when they was married that there never was two people more in love with each other. Poor creatures. They didn't live much longer. But they was awful happy while they was alive, and I suppose that counts for a good deal." Anne longed to get home to read her precious letters, but she made one little pilgrimage first. She went alone to the green corner of the old Bolingbroke Cemetery, where her father and mother were buried, and left on their grave the white flower she carried. Then she hastened back to Mount Holly, shut herself up in her room, and read the letters. Some were written by her father, some by her mother. There were not many, only a dozen in all, for Walter and Bertha Shirley had not been often separated during their courtship. The letters were yellow and faded and dim, blurred with the touch of passing years. No profound words of wisdom were traced on the stained and wrinkled pages, but only lines of love and trust. The sweetness of forgotten things clung to them, the far-off fond imaginings of those long-dead lovers. Bertha Shirley had possessed the gift of writing letters which embodied the charming personality of the writer in words and thoughts that retained their beauty and fragrance after the lapse of time. The letters were tender, intimate, sacred. To Anne the sweetest of all was the one written after her birth to the father on a brief absence. It was full of a proud young mother's accounts of baby, her cleverness, her brightness, her thousand sweetnesses. "'I love her best when she is asleep, and better still when she is awake.' Bertha Shirley had written in the postscript. Probably it was the last sentence she had ever penned. The end was very near for her. "'This has been the most beautiful day of my life,' Anne said to Phil that night. "'I've found my father and mother. Those letters have made them real to me. I'm not an orphan any longer. I feel as if I had opened a book and found roses of yesterday, sweet and beloved, between its leaves.'" End of chapter 21. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Two of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Read for LibriVox by Karen Savage. Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island. Chapter Twenty Two. Spring and Anne return to Green Gables. The firelight shadows were dancing over the kitchen walls at Green Gables, for the spring evening was chilly. Through the open east window drifted in the subtly sweet voices of the night. Marilla was sitting by the fire at least in body. In spirit she was roaming olden ways, with feet grown young. Of late Marilla had thus spent many an hour, when she thought she should have been knitting for the twins. "'I suppose I'm growing old,' she said. Yet Marilla had changed but little in the past nine years. 
save to grow something thinner and even more angular. There was a little more grey in the hair that was still twisted up in the same hard knot with two hairpins—were they the same hairpins?—still stuck through it. But her expression was very different. The something about the mouth which had hinted at a sense of humour had developed wonderfully. Her eyes were gentler and milder, her smile more frequent and tender. Marilla was thinking of her whole past life—her cramped but not unhappy childhood, the jealously hidden dreams and the blighted hopes of her girlhood, the long, grey, narrow, monotonous years of dull middle life that followed, and the coming of Anne, the vivid, imaginative, impetuous child with her heart of love and her world of fancy, bringing with her colour and warmth and radiance, until the wilderness of existence had blossomed like the rose. Marilla felt that out of her sixty years she had lived only the nine that had followed the advent of Anne. And Anne would be home tomorrow night. The kitchen door opened. Marilla looked up, expecting to see Mrs. Lynde. Anne stood before her, tall and starry-eyed, with her hands full of mayflowers and violets. "'Anne Shirley!' exclaimed Marilla. For once in her life she was surprised out of her reserve. She caught her girl in her arms and crushed her and her flowers against her heart, kissing the bright hair and sweet face warmly. "'I never looked for you till tomorrow night. How did you get from Carmody?' "'Walked, dearest of Marilla's. Haven't I done it a score of times in the Queen's days? The mailman is to bring my trunk tomorrow. I just got homesick all at once and came a day earlier. And, oh, I've had such a lovely walk in the May twilight. I stopped by the barrens and picked these mayflowers. I came through Violet Vale. It's just a big bowl full of violets now, the dear sky-tinted things. Smell them, Marilla. Drink them in." Marilla sniffed obligingly, but she was more interested in Anne than in drinking violets. "'Sit down, child. You must be real tired. I'm going to get you some supper.' There's a darling moonrise behind the hills tonight, Marilla, and oh, how the frogs sang me home from Carmody. I do love the music of the frogs. It seems bound up with all my happiest recollections of old spring evenings, and it always reminds me of the night I came here first. Do you remember it, Marilla?" "'Well, yes,' said Marilla, with emphasis. I am not likely to forget it ever. They used to sing so madly in the marsh and brook that year. I would listen to them at my window in the dusk and wonder how they could seem so glad and so sad at the same time. Oh, but it's good to be home again. Redmond was splendid and Bolingbroke delightful, but Green Gables is home." "'Gilbert isn't coming home this summer, I hear,' said Marilla. No. Something in Anne's tone made Marilla glance at her sharply, but Anne was apparently absorbed in arranging her violets in a bowl. "'See, aren't they sweet?' she went on hurriedly. "'The year is a book, isn't it, Marilla?' Spring's pages are written in mayflowers and violets, summer's in roses, autumn's in red maple leaves, and winter in holly and evergreen." "'Did Gilbert do well in his examinations?' persisted Marilla. "'Excellently well. He led his class. But where are the twins and Mrs. Lynde?' "'Rachel and Dora are over at Mr. Harrison's. Davy is down at the Bolters. I think I hear him coming now.' Davy burst in, saw Anne, stopped, and then hurled himself upon her with a joyful yell. "'Oh!' Anne, ain't I glad to see you? Say, Anne, I've grown two inches since last fall. Mrs. Lynde measured me with her tape today, and say, Anne, see my front tooth? It's gone. Mrs. Lynde tied one end of a string to it and the other end to the door, and then shut the door. I sold it to Milty for two cents. Milty's collecting teeth. What in the world does he want teeth for? asked Marilla. To make a necklace for playing Indian chief, explained Davy, climbing upon Anne's lap. He's got fifteen already, and everybody else has promised, so there's no use in the rest of us starting to collect, too. I tell you the Bolters are great business people." "'Were you a good boy at Mrs. Bolter's?' asked Marilla severely. 
Yes, but say, Marilla, I'm tired of being good. You'd get tired of being bad much sooner, Davy boy, said Anne. Well, it'd be fun while it lasted, wouldn't it? persisted Davy. I could be sorry for it afterwards, couldn't I? Being sorry wouldn't do away with the consequences of being bad, Davy. Don't you remember the Sunday last summer when you ran away from Sunday school? You told me then that being bad wasn't worth while. What were you and Milty doing today? Oh, we fished and chased the cat and hunted for eggs and yelled at the echo. There's a great echo in the bush behind the Bolter barn. Say, what is echo, Anne? I want to know. Echo is a beautiful nymph, Davy, living far away in the woods and laughing at the world from among the hills. What does she look like? Her hair and eyes are dark, but her neck and arms are white as snow. No mortal can ever see how fair she is. She is fleeter than a deer, and that mocking voice of hers is all we can know of her. You can hear her calling at night. You can hear her laughing under the stars, but you can never see her. She flies afar if you follow her, and laughs at you always just over the next hill. "'Is that true, Anne, or is it a whopper?' demanded Davy, staring. "'Davy,' said Anne despairingly, "'haven't you sense enough to distinguish between a fairy tale and a falsehood?' "'Then what is it that sasses back from the bolter bush? I want to know,' insisted Davy. "'When you are a little older, Davy, I'll explain it all to you.' The mention of age evidently gave a new turn to Davy's thoughts, for after a few moments of reflection he whispered solemnly, "'Anne, I'm going to be married.' "'When?' asked Anne, with equal solemnity. "'Oh, not until I'm grown up, of course.' "'Well, that's a relief, Davy. Who is the lady?' "'Stella Fletcher. She's in my class at school. And say, Anne, she's the prettiest girl you ever saw. If I die before I grow up, you'll keep an eye on her, won't you?' "'Davy Keith, do stop talking such nonsense,' said Marilla severely. "'Tisn't nonsense,' protested Davy, in an injured tone. "'She's my promised wife, and if I was to die she'd be my promised widow, wouldn't she?' and she hasn't got a soul to look after her except her old grandmother. "'Come and have your supper, Anne,' said Marilla, "'and don't encourage that child in his absurd talk.'" End of chapter 22. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter 23 of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Read for LibriVox by Karen Savage. Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island, Chapter Twenty Three. Paul cannot find the rock people. Life was very pleasant in Avonlea that summer, although Anne, amid all her vacation joys, was haunted by a sense of something gone which should be there. She would not admit, even in her inmost reflections, that this was caused by Gilbert's absence. But when she had to walk home alone from prayer meetings and Avis powwows, while Diana and Fred and many other gay couples loitered along the dusky, starlit country roads, there was a queer, lonely ache in her heart which she could not explain away. Gilbert did not even write to her, as she thought he might have done. She knew he wrote to Diana occasionally, but she would not inquire about him, and Diana, supposing that Anne heard from him, volunteered no information. Gilbert's mother, who was a gay, frank, light-hearted lady, but not overburdened with tact, had a very embarrassing habit of asking Anne, always in a painfully distinct voice and always in the presence of a crowd, if she had heard from Gilbert lately. Poor Anne could only blush horribly and murmur, not very lately, which was taken by all, Mrs. Blythe included, to be merely a maidenly evasion. Apart from this, Anne enjoyed her summer. Priscilla came for a merry visit in June, and when she had gone, Mr. and Mrs. Irving, Paul, and Carlotta the Fourth came home for July and August. Echo Lodge was the scene of gaieties once more, 
and the echoes over the river were kept busy mimicking the laughter that rang in the old garden behind the spruces. Miss Lavender had not changed, except to grow even sweeter and prettier. Paul adored her, and the companionship between them was beautiful to see. "'But I don't call her mother just by itself,' he explained to Anne. "'You see, that name belongs just to my own little mother, and I can't give it to anyone else. You know, teacher. But I call her Mother Lavender, and I love her next best to father. I—I I even love her a little better than you, teacher.' "'Which is just as it ought to be,' answered Anne. Paul was thirteen now, and very tall for his years. His face and eyes were as beautiful as ever, and his fancy was still like a prism, separating everything that fell upon it into rainbows. He and Anne had delightful rambles to wood and field and shore. Never were there two more thoroughly kindred spirits. Carlotta the Fourth had blossomed out into young ladyhood. She wore her hair now in an enormous pompadour, and had discarded the blue ribbon bows of old Lang Syne, but her face was as freckled, her nose as snubbed, and her mouth and smiles as wide as ever. "'You don't think I talk with a Yankee accent, do you, Miss Shirley, ma'am?' she demanded anxiously. "'I don't notice it, Carlotta. I'm real glad of that. They said I did at home, but I thought likely they just wanted to aggravate me. I don't want no Yankee accent. Not that I've a word to say against the Yankees, Miss Shirley, ma'am. They're real civilized. But give me old P.E. Island every time." Paul spent his first fortnight with his grandmother Irving in Avonlea. Anne was there to meet him when he came, and found him wild with eagerness to get to the shore. Nora and the Golden Lady and the Twin Sailors would be there. He could hardly wait to eat his supper. Could he not see Nora's elfin face peering around the point, watching for him wistfully? But it was a very sober Paul who came back from the shore in the twilight. "'Didn't you find your rock people?' asked Anne. Paul shook his chestnut curls sorrowfully. "'The twin sailors and the golden lady never came at all,' he said. "'Nora was there. But Nora's not the same teacher. She's changed.' "'Oh, Paul, it is you who are changed,' said Anne. "'You have grown too old for the rock people. They like only children for playfellows. I am afraid the twin sailors will never again come to you in the pearly enchanted boat with the sail of moonshine, and the golden lady will play no more for you on her golden harp. Even Nora will not meet you much longer. You must pay the penalty of growing up, Paul. You must leave Fairyland behind you." "'You two talk as much foolishness as you ever did,' said old Mrs. Irving, half indulgently, half reprovingly. "'Oh, no, we don't,' said Anne, shaking her head gravely. "'We are getting very, very wise, and it is such a pity. We are never half so interesting when we have learned that language is given us to enable us to conceal our thoughts. But it isn't. It has given us to exchange our thoughts," said Mrs. Irving seriously. She had never heard of Talleyrand, and did not understand epigrams. Anne spent a fortnight of halcyon days at Echo Lodge in the golden prime of August. While there she incidentally contrived to hurry Ludovic Speed in his leisurely courting of Theodora Dix, as related duly in another chronicle of her history. Arnold Sherman, an elderly friend of the Irvings, was there at the same time, and added not a little to the general pleasantness of life. "'What a nice playtime this has been,' said Anne. "'I feel like a giant refreshed. And it's only a fortnight more till I go back to Kingsport and Redmond and Patty's Place. Patty's Place is the dearest spot, Miss Lavender. I feel as if I had two homes—one at Green Gables and one at Patty's Place. But where has the summer gone? It doesn't seem a day since I came home that spring evening with the Mayflowers. When I was little I couldn't see from one end of the summer to the other. It stretched before me like an unending season. Now tis a handbreadth, tis a tale. "'Anne, are you and Gilbert Blythe as good friends as you used to be?' asked Miss Lavender quietly. "'I am just as much Gilbert's friend as ever I was, Miss Lavender.' Miss Lavender shook her head. 
I see something's gone wrong, Anne. I'm going to be impertinent and ask what. Have you quarreled? No. It's only that Gilbert wants more than friendship, and I can't give him more. Are you sure of that, Anne? Perfectly sure. I'm very, very sorry. I wonder why everybody seems to think I ought to marry Gilbert Blythe, said Anne petulantly. Because you were made and meant for each other, Anne. That is why. You needn't toss that young head of yours. It's a fact. End of chapter 23. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter 24 of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Read for LibriVox.org by Karen Savage. Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island. Chapter 24. Enter Jonas. Prospect Point, August 20th. Dear Anne, spelled with an E, wrote Phil. I must prop my eyelids open long enough to write you. I have neglected you shamefully this summer, honey, but all my other correspondents have been neglected, too. I have a huge pile of letters to answer, so I must gird up the loins of my mind and hoe in. Excuse my mixed metaphors. I'm fearfully sleepy. Last night Cousin Emily and I were calling at a neighbor's. There were several other callers there, and as soon as those unfortunate creatures left, our hostess and her three daughters picked them all to pieces. I knew they would begin on Cousin Emily and me as soon as the door shut behind us. When we came home, Mrs. Lilly informed us that the aforesaid neighbor's hired boy was supposed to be down with scarlet fever. You can always trust Mrs. Lilly to tell you cheerful things like that. I have a horror of scarlet fever. I couldn't sleep when I went to bed for thinking of it. I tossed and tumbled about, dreaming fearful dreams when I did snooze for a minute. And at three I wakened up with a high fever, a sore throat, and a raging headache. I knew I had scarlet fever. I got up in a panic and hunted up Cousin Emily's doctor book to read up the symptoms. And I had them all. So I went back to bed, and, knowing the worst, slept like a top the rest of the night. Though why a top should sleep sounder than anything else I never could understand. But this morning I was quite well, so it couldn't have been the fever. I suppose if I did catch it last night, it couldn't have developed so soon. I can remember that in daytime, but at three o'clock at night I never can be logical. I suppose you wonder what I am doing at Prospect Point. Well, I always like to spend a month of summer at the shore, and Father insists that I come to his second cousin Emily's select boarding-house at Prospect Point. So a fortnight ago I came as usual. And as usual, old Uncle Mark Miller brought me from the station with his ancient buggy and what he calls his generous purpose horse. He's a nice old man, and gave me a handful of pink peppermints. Peppermints always seem to me such a religious sort of candy, I suppose because when I was a little girl Grandmother Gordon always gave them to me in church. Once I asked, referring to the smell of peppermints, is that the odor of sanctity? I didn't like to eat Uncle Mark's peppermints because he just fished them loose out of his pocket and had to pick some rusty nails and other things from among them before he gave them to me. But I wouldn't hurt his dear old feelings for anything, so I carefully sewed them along the road at intervals. When the last one was gone, Uncle Mark said a little rebukingly, "'You shouldn't have ate all them candies to once, Miss Phil. You'll likely have the stomach ache.'" Cousin Emily has only five boarders besides myself—four old ladies and one young man. My right-hand neighbor is Mrs. Lilly. She is one of those people who seem to take a gruesome pleasure in detailing all their many aches and pains and sicknesses. You cannot mention any ailment, but she says, shaking her head, "'Ah, oh, I know too well what that is.' And then you get all the details. Jonas declares he once spoke of locomotor ataxia and hearing, and she said she knew too well what that was. She suffered from it for ten years and was finally cured by a traveling doctor. Who is Jonas? Just wait, Anne Shirley. You'll hear all about Jonas in the proper time and place. He is not to be mixed up with estimable old ladies. 
My left-hand neighbor at the table is Mrs. Finney. She always speaks with a wailing, dolorous voice. You are nervously expecting her to burst into tears every moment. She gives you the impression that life to her is indeed a veil of tears, and that a smile, never to speak of a laugh, is a frivolity truly reprehensible. She has a worse opinion of me than Aunt Jamesina, and she doesn't love me hard to atone for it as Auntie J does, either. Miss Maria Grimsby sits catty-corner from me. The first day I came I remarked to Miss Maria that it looked a little like rain, and Miss Maria laughed. I said the road from the station was very pretty, and Miss Maria laughed. I said there seemed to be a few mosquitoes left yet, and Miss Maria laughed. I said that Prospect Point was as beautiful as ever, and Miss Maria laughed. If I were to say to Miss Maria, my father has hanged himself, my mother has taken poison, my brother is in the penitentiary, and I am in the last stages of consumption, Miss Maria would laugh. She can't help it, she was born so, but it is very sad and awful. The fifth old lady is Mrs. Grant. She is a sweet old thing, but she never says anything but good of anybody, so she is a very uninteresting conversationalist. And now for Jonas, Anne. The first day I came I saw a young man sitting opposite me at the table, smiling at me as if he had known me from my cradle. I knew, for Uncle Mark had told me, that his name was Jonas Blake that he was a theological student from St. Columbia, and that he had taken charge of the Point Prospect Mission Church for the summer. He is a very ugly young man, really the ugliest young man I've ever seen. He has a big, loose-jointed figure with absurdly long legs. His hair is tow-color and lank, his eyes are green, and his mouth is big, and his ears—but I never think about his ears if I can help it. He has a lovely voice. If you shut your eyes he is adorable, and he certainly has a beautiful soul and disposition. We were good chums right away. Of course he is a graduate of Redmond, and that is a link between us. We fished and boated together, and we walked on the sands by moonlight. He didn't look so homely by moonlight, and oh, he was nice. Niceness fairly exhaled from him. The old ladies, except Mrs. Grant, don't approve of Jonas, because he laughs and jokes, and because he evidently likes the society of frivolous me better than theirs. Somehow, Anne, I don't want him to think me frivolous. This is ridiculous. Why should I care what a tow-haired person called Jonas, whom I never saw before, thinks of me? Last Sunday Jonas preached in the village church. I went, of course, but I couldn't realize that Jonas was going to preach. The fact that he was a minister, or going to be one, persisted in seeming a huge joke to me. Well, Jonas preached. And by the time he had preached ten minutes, I felt so small and insignificant that I thought I must be invisible to the naked eye. Jonas never said a word about women, and he never looked at me, but I realized then and there what a pitiful, frivolous, small-souled little butterfly I was, and how horribly different I must be from Jonas's ideal woman. She would be grand and strong and noble. He was so earnest and tender and true. He was everything a minister ought to be. I wondered how I could ever have thought him ugly. But he really is, with those inspired eyes and that intellectual brow which the roughly falling hair hid on weekdays. It was a splendid sermon, and I could have listened to it forever, and it made me feel utterly wretched. Oh, I wish I was like you, Anne." He caught up with me on the road home and grinned as cheerfully as usual, but his grin could never deceive me again. I had seen the real Jonas. I wondered if he could ever see the real Phil, whom nobody—not even you, Anne—has ever seen yet. "'Jonas,' I said—I forgot to call him Mr. Blake—wasn't it dreadful? But there are times when things like that don't matter. Jonas, you were born to be a minister. You couldn't be anything else." No, I couldn't, he said soberly. I tried to be something else for a long time. I didn't want to be a minister. But I came to see at last that it was the work given me to do. And God helping me, I shall try to do it. His voice was low and reverent. 
I thought that he would do his work and do it well and nobly, and happy the woman fitted by nature and training to help him do it. She would be no feather blown about by every fickle wind of fancy. She would always know what hat to put on. Probably she would have only one. Ministers never have much money. But she wouldn't mind having one hat or none at all, because she would have Jonas. And Shirley, don't you dare say or hint or think that I've fallen in love with Mr. Blake. Could I care for a lank, poor, ugly theologue called Jonas? As Uncle Mark says, it's impossible. And what's more, it's improbable. Good night. Phil. P.S. It is impossible. But I am horribly afraid it's true. I'm happy and wretched and scared. He can never care for me, I know. Do you think I could ever develop into a passable minister's wife, Anne? And would they expect me to lead in prayer? P.G. End of chapter 24. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter 25 of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Read for LibriVox by Karen Savage. Please visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island, Chapter 25. Enter Prince Charming. I'm contrasting the claims of indoors and out said Anne, looking from the window of Patty's place to the distant pines of the park. "'I've an afternoon to spend in sweet doing nothing, Aunt Jimsie. Shall I spend it here, where there is a cozy fire, a plateful of delicious russets, three purring and harmonious cats, and two impeccable china dogs with green noses? Or shall I go to the park, where there is the lure of grey woods and of grey water lapping on the harbour rocks?' "'If I was as young as you, I'd decide in favour of the park.' said Aunt Jamesina, tickling Joseph's yellow ear with a knitting-needle. "'I thought that you claimed to be as young as any of us, Auntie,' teased Anne. "'Yes, in my soul. But I'll admit my legs aren't as young as yours. You go and get some fresh air, Anne. You look pale lately.' "'I think I'll go to the park,' said Anne restlessly. "'I don't feel like tame domestic joys today. I want to feel alone and free and wild. The park will be empty, for everyone will be at the football match.' "'Why didn't you go to it?' "'Nobody asked me, sir,' she said. At least, nobody but that horrid little Dan Ranger. I wouldn't go anywhere with him. But rather than hurt his poor little tender feelings, I said I wasn't going to the game at all. I don't mind. I'm not in the mood for football today, somehow." "'You go and get some fresh air,' repeated Aunt Jamesina. "'But take your umbrella, for I believe it's going to rain. I have rheumatism in my leg.' "'Only old people should have rheumatism, Auntie.' "'Anybody is liable to rheumatism in her legs, Anne. It's only old people who should have rheumatism in their souls, though.' Thank goodness I never have. When you get rheumatism in your soul, you might as well go and pick out your coffin." It was November, the month of crimson sunsets, parting birds, deep, sad hymns of the sea, passionate wind-songs in the pines. Anne roamed through the pineland alleys in the park, and, as she said, let that great sweeping wind blow the fogs out of her soul. Anne was not wont to be troubled with soul-fog, but somehow, since her return to Redmond for this third year, Life had not mirrored her spirit back to her with its old, perfect, sparkling clearness. Outwardly, existence at Patty's place was the same pleasant round of work and study and recreation that it had always been. On Friday evenings the big, fire-lighted living-room was crowded by callers, and echoed to endless jest and laughter, while Aunt Jamesina smiled beamingly on them all. The Jonas of Phil's letter came often, running up from St. Columbia on the early train and departing on the late. He was a general favorite at Patty's place though Aunt Jamesina shook her head and opined that divinity students were not what they used to be. "'He's very nice, my dear,' she told Phil. "'But ministers ought to be graver and more dignified.' "'Can't a man laugh and be a Christian still?' demanded Phil. "'Oh, men, yes. 
but I was speaking of ministers, my dear," said Aunt Jamesina rebukingly. And you shouldn't flirt so with Mr. Blake. You really shouldn't. I'm not flirting with him," protested Phil. Nobody believed her, except Anne. The others thought she was amusing herself as usual, and told her roundly that she was behaving very badly. Mr. Blake isn't of the Alec and Alonzo type, Phil," said Stella severely. He takes things seriously. You may break his heart. Do you really think I could?" asked Phil. I'd love to think so. Philippa Gordon, I never thought you were utterly unfeeling. The idea of you saying you'd love to break a man's heart! I didn't say so, honey. Quote me correctly. I said I'd like to think I could break it. I would like to know I had the power to do it. I don't understand you, Phil. You're leading that man on deliberately, and you know you don't mean anything by it. I mean to make him ask him to marry me if I can," said Phil calmly. "I give you up," said Stella hopelessly. Gilbert came occasionally on Friday evenings. He seemed always in good spirits and held his own in the jests and repartee that flew about. He neither sought nor avoided Anne. When circumstances brought them in contact, he talked to her pleasantly and courteously, as to any newly made acquaintance. The old camaraderie was gone entirely. Anne felt it keenly, but she told herself she was very glad and thankful that Gilbert had got so completely over his disappointment in regard to her. She had really been afraid that April evening in the orchard that she had hurt him terribly. And that the wound would be long in healing. Now she saw that she need not have worried. Men have died and the worms have eaten them, but not for love. Gilbert evidently was in no danger of immediate dissolution. He was enjoying life and he was full of ambition and zest. For him there was to be no wasting in despair because a woman was fair and cold. Anne, as she listened to the ceaseless badinage that went on between him and Phil, wondered if she had only imagined that look in his eyes when she had told him she could never care for him. There were not lacking those who would gladly have stepped into Gilbert's vacant place, but Anne snubbed them without fear and without reproach. If the real Prince Charming was never to come, she would have none of a substitute. So she sternly told herself that gray day in the windy park. Suddenly, the reign of Aunt Jamesina's prophecy came with a swish and a rush. Anne put up her umbrella and hurried down the slope. As she turned out on the harbor road, a savage gust of wind tore along it. Instantly, her umbrella turned wrong side out. Anne clutched at it in despair. And then, there came a voice close to her. Pardon me, may I offer you the shelter of my umbrella? Anne looked up, tall and handsome and distinguished-looking, dark, melancholy, inscrutable eyes, melting, musical, sympathetic voice. Yes, the very hero of her dreams stood before her in the flesh. He could not have more closely resembled her ideal if he had been made to order. Thank you, she said confusedly. We'd better hurry over to that little pavilion on the point," suggested the unknown. "We can wait there until the shower is over. It is not likely to rain so heavily very long." The words were commonplace, but oh, the tone, and the smile which accompanied them! Anne felt her heart beating strangely. Together they scurried to the pavilion and sat breathlessly down under its friendly roof. Anne laughingly held up her false umbrella. It is when my umbrella turns inside out that I am convinced of the total depravity of inanimate things," she said gaily. The raindrops sparkled on her shining hair; its loosened rings curled around her neck and forehead. Her cheeks were flushed, her eyes big and starry. Her companion looked down at her admiringly. She felt herself blushing under his gaze. Who could he be? Why, there was a bit of the Redmond white and scarlet pinned to his coat lapel. Yet she had thought she knew by sight at least all the Redmond students except the freshmen. And this courtly youth surely was no freshman. We are schoolmates, I see," he said, smiling at Anne's colors. That ought to be sufficient introduction. My name is Royal Gardner, 
And you are the Miss Shirley who read the Tennyson paper at the Philomathic the other evening, aren't you?" "'Yes, but I cannot place you at all,' said Anne frankly. "'Please, where do you belong?' "'I feel as if I didn't belong anywhere yet. I put in my freshman and sophomore years at Redmond two years ago. I've been in Europe ever since. Now I've come back to finish my arts course. This is my junior year, too," said Anne. So we are classmates as well as college-mates. I am reconciled to the loss of the years that the locust has eaten," said her companion, with a world of meaning in those wonderful eyes of his. The rain came steadily down for the best part of an hour, but the time seemed really very short. When the clouds parted and a burst of pale November sunshine fell athwart the harbour and the pines, Anne and her companion walked home together. By the time they had reached the gate of Patty's place, he had asked permission to call, and had received it. Anne went in with cheeks of flame and her heart beating to her fingertips. Rusty, who climbed into her lap and tried to kiss her, found a very absent welcome. Anne, with her soul full of romantic thrills, had no attention to spare just then for a crop-eared pussy-cat. That evening a parcel was left at Patty's place for Miss Shirley. It was a box containing a dozen magnificent roses. Phil pounced impertinently on the card that fell from it, read the name and the poetical quotation written on the back. "'Royal Gardner!' she exclaimed. "'Why, Anne, I didn't know you were acquainted with Roy Gardner.' "'I met him in the park this afternoon in the rain,' explained Anne hurriedly. "'My umbrella turned inside out, and he came to my rescue with his.' "'Oh!' Phil peered curiously at Anne. "'And is that exceedingly commonplace incident any reason why he should send us long-stemmed roses by the dozen, with a very sentimental rhyme? Or why we should blush divinest rosy red when we look at his card? Anne, thy face betrayeth thee.' "'Don't talk nonsense, Phil. Do you know Mr. Gardner?' "'I've met his two sisters, and I know of him. So does everybody worthwhile in Kingsport. The Gardners are among the richest, bluest of blue-noses. Roy is adorably handsome and clever. Two years ago his mother's health failed, and he had to leave college and go abroad with her. His father is dead. He must have been greatly disappointed to have to give up his class, but they say he was perfectly sweet about it. "'Dee-fi-fo-fum-an' I smell romance.' Almost do I envy you, but not quite. After all, Roy Gardner isn't Jonas." "'You goose!' said Anne loftily. But she lay long awake that night, nor did she wish for sleep. Her waking fancies were more alluring than any vision of dreamland. Had the real prince come at last? Recalling those glorious dark eyes which had gazed so deeply into her own, Anne was very strongly inclined to think he had. End of chapter 25 all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Six of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery, read for LibriVox.org by Karen Savage. Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island, Chapter Twenty Six. Enter Christine. The girls at Patty's place were dressing for the reception which the juniors were giving for the seniors in February. Anne surveyed herself in the mirror of the blue room with girlish satisfaction. She had a particularly pretty gown on. Originally, it had been only a simple little slip of cream silk with a chiffon overdress, but Phil had insisted on taking it home with her in the Christmas holidays and embroidering tiny rosebuds all over the chiffon. Phil's fingers were deft, and the result was a dress which was the envy of every Redmond girl. Even Allie Boone, whose frocks came from Paris, was wont to look with longing eyes on that rosebud concoction as Anne trailed up the main staircase at Redmond in it. Anne was trying the effect of a white orchid in her hair. Roy Gardner had sent her white orchids for the reception, and she knew no other Redmond girl would have them that night, when Phil came in with admiring gaze. 
Anne, this is certainly your night for looking handsome. Nine nights out of ten I can easily outshine you. The tenth you blossom out suddenly into something that eclipses me altogether. How do you manage it? It's the dress, dear, fine feathers. Tisn't. The last evening you flamed out into beauty you wore your old blue flannel shirtwaist that Mrs. Lynde made you. If Roy hadn't already lost head and heart about you, he certainly would tonight. But I don't like orchids on you, Anne. No, it isn't jealousy. Orchids don't seem to belong to you. They're too exotic, too tropical, too insolent. Don't put them in your hair, anyway. Well, I won't. I admit I'm not fond of orchids myself. I don't think they're related to me. Roy doesn't often send them. He knows I like flowers I can live with. Orchids are only things you can visit with. Jonas sent me some dear pink rosebuds for the evening, but he isn't coming himself. He said he had to lead a prayer meeting in the slums. I don't believe he wanted to come. Anne, I'm horribly afraid Jonas doesn't really care anything about me, and I'm trying to decide whether I'll pine away and die or go on and get my B.A. and be sensible and useful. You couldn't possibly be sensible and useful, Phil, so you'd better pine away and die," said Anne cruelly. Heartless Anne! Silly Phil! You know quite well that Jonas loves you. But he won't tell me so, and I can't make him. He looks it, I'll admit. But speak to me only with thine eyes isn't a really reliable reason for embroidering doilies and hemstitching tablecloths. I don't want to begin such work until I'm really engaged. It would be tempting fate. Mr. Blake is afraid to ask you to marry him, Phil. He is poor and can't offer you a home such as you've always had. You know that is the only reason he hasn't spoken long ago." "'I suppose so,' agreed Phil dolefully. "'Well,' brightening up, "'if he won't ask me to marry him, I'll ask him. That's all. So it's bound to come right. I won't worry. By the way, Gilbert Blythe is going about constantly with Christine Stewart. Did you know?' Anne was trying to fasten a little gold chain about her throat. She suddenly found the clasp difficult to manage. What was the matter with it? Or with her fingers? No, she said carelessly. Who is Christine Stewart? Ronald Stewart's sister. She's in Kingsport this winter studying music. I haven't seen her, but they say she's very pretty, and that Gilbert is quite crazy over her. How angry I was when you refused Gilbert, Anne. But Roy Gardner was foreordained for you. I can see that now. You were right, after all. Anne did not blush, as she usually did when the girls assumed that her eventual marriage to Roy Gardner was a settled thing. All at once she felt rather dull. Phil's chatter seemed trivial, and the reception a bore. She boxed poor Rusty's ears. "'Get off that cushion instantly, you cat, you! Why don't you stay down where you belong?' Anne picked up her orchids and went downstairs, where Aunt Jamesina was presiding over a row of coats hung before the fire to warm. Roy Gardner was waiting for Anne and teasing the Sarah-cat while he waited. The Sarah-cat did not approve of him. She always turned her back on him. But everybody else at Patty's place liked him very much. Aunt Jamesina, carried away by his unfailing and deferential courtesy, and the pleading tones of his delightful voice, declared he was the nicest young man she ever knew, and that Anne was a very fortunate girl. Such remarks made Anne restive. Anne's wooing had certainly been as romantic as girlish heart could desire, but she wished Aunt Jamesina and the girls would not take things so for granted. When Roy murmured a poetical compliment as he helped her on with her coat, she did not blush and thrill as usual, and he found her rather silent in their brief walk to Redmond. He thought she looked a little pale when she came out of the coeds dressing-room, but as they entered the reception-room her color and sparkle suddenly returned to her. She turned to Roy with her gayest expression. He smiled back at her with what Phil called his deep black velvety smile. Yet she really did not see Roy at all. She was acutely conscious that Gilbert was standing under the palms just across the room, talking to a girl who must be Christine Stewart. 
She was very handsome, in the stately style destined to become rather massive in middle life. A tall girl with large, dark blue eyes, ivory outlines, and a gloss of darkness on her smooth hair. She looks just as I've always wanted to look, thought Anne miserably. Rose-leaf complexion, starry violet eyes, raven hair. Yes, she has them all. It's a wonder her name isn't Cordelia Fitzgerald into the bargain. But I don't believe her figure is as good as mine, and her nose certainly isn't. Anne felt a little comforted by this conclusion. End of chapter 26 All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter 27 of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery Read for LibriVox by Karen Savage Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island, Chapter 27 Mutual Confidences March came in that winter like the meekest and mildest of lambs, bringing days that were crisp and golden and tingling, each followed by a frosty pink twilight which gradually lost itself in an elfland of moonshine. Over the girls at Patty's place was falling the shadow of April examinations. They were studying hard. Even Phil had settled down to text and notebooks with a doggedness not to be expected of her. "'I'm going to take the Johnson Scholarship in Mathematics,' she announced calmly. I could take the one in Greek easily, but I'd rather take the mathematical one because I want to prove to Jonas that I'm really enormously clever. Jonas likes you better for your big brown eyes and your crooked smile than for all the brains you carry under your curls," said Anne. When I was a girl it wasn't considered ladylike to know anything about mathematics," said Aunt Jamesina. But times have changed. I don't know that it's all for the better. Can you cook, Phil? No, I never cooked anything in my life except a gingerbread, and it was a failure. Flat in the middle and hilly round the edges. You know the kind. But, Auntie, when I begin in good earnest to learn to cook, don't you think the brains that enable me to win a mathematical scholarship will also enable me to learn cooking just as well?" "'Maybe,' said Aunt Jamesina cautiously. "'I am not decrying the higher education of women. My daughter is an M.A. She can cook, too. But I taught her to cook before I let a college professor teach her mathematics." In mid-March came a letter from Miss Patty Spofford, saying that she and Miss Maria had decided to remain abroad for another year. So you may have Patty's place next winter, too," she wrote. Maria and I are going to run over Egypt. I want to see the Sphinx once before I die. Fancy those two dames running over Egypt. I wonder if they'll look up at the Sphinx and knit," laughed Priscilla. I'm so glad we can keep Patty's place for another year," said Stella. I was afraid they'd come back, and then our jolly little nest here would be broken up, and we poor callow nestlings thrown out on the cruel world of boarding-houses again. I am off for a tramp in the park," announced Phil, tossing her book aside. I think when I'm eighty I'll be glad I went for a walk in the park tonight. What do you mean? asked Anne. Come with me and I'll tell you, honey. They captured in their ramble all the mysteries and magics of a March evening. Very still and mild it was, wrapped in a great, white, brooding silence. A silence which was yet threaded through with many little silvery sounds which you could hear if you hearkened as much with your soul as with your ears. The girls wandered down a long, pineland aisle that seemed to lead right out into the heart of a deep red, overflowing winter sunset. "'I'd go home and write a poem this blessed minute if only I knew how,' declared Phil, pausing in an open space where a rosy light was staining the green tips of the pines. "'It's all so wonderful here—this great white stillness and those dark trees that always seem to be thinking.' "'The woods were God's first temples,' quoted Anne softly. One can't help feeling reverent and adoring in such a place. I always feel so near him when I walk among the pines. Anne, I'm the happiest girl in the world," confessed Phil suddenly. So Mr. Blake has asked you to marry him at last? 
said Anne calmly. Yes, and I sneezed three times while he was asking me. Wasn't that horrid? But I said yes almost before he finished. I was so afraid he might change his mind and stop. I'm besottedly happy. I couldn't really believe before that Jonas would ever care for frivolous me. Phil, you're not really frivolous, said Anne gravely. Way down underneath that frivolous exterior of yours, you've got a dear, loyal, womanly little soul. Why do you hide it so? I can't help it, Queen Anne. You are right. I'm not frivolous at heart. But there's a sort of frivolous skin over my soul, and I can't take it off. As Mrs. Poyser says, I'd have to be hatched over again and hatched different before I could change it. But Jonas knows the real me and loves me, frivolity and all. And I love him. I never was so surprised in my life as I was when I found out I loved him. I'd never thought it possible to fall in love with an ugly man. Fancy me coming down to one solitary bow, and one named Jonas. But I mean to call him Joe. That's such a nice, crisp little name. I couldn't nickname Alonzo. What about Alec and Alonzo? Oh, I told them at Christmas that I never could marry either of them. It seems so funny now to remember that I ever thought it possible that I might. They felt so badly I just cried over both of them. Howled. But I knew there was only one man in the world I could ever marry. I had made up my own mind for once, and it was real easy, too. It's very delightful to feel so sure, and to know it's your own sureness and not somebody else's. Do you suppose you'll be able to keep it up? Making up my mind, you mean? I don't know. But Joe has given me a splendid rule. He says when I'm perplexed, just to do what I would wish I had done when I shall be eighty. Anyhow, Joe can make up his mind quickly enough, and it would be uncomfortable to have too much mind in the same house. What will your father and mother say? Father won't say much. He thinks everything I do right. But mother will talk. Oh, her tongue will be as burny as her nose. But in the end it will be all right. You'll have to give up a good many things you've always had when you marry Mr. Blakeville. But I'll have him. I won't miss the other things. We're to be married a year from next June. Joe graduates from St. Columbia this spring, you know. Then he's going to take a little mission church down on Patterson Street in the slums. Fancy me in the slums! But I'd go there or to Greenland's icy mountains with him. And this is the girl who would never marry a man who wasn't rich," commented Anne to a young pine-tree. Oh, don't cast up the follies of my youth to me. I shall be poor as gaily as I've been rich. You'll see. I'm going to learn how to cook and make over dresses. I've learned how to market since I've lived at Patty's place, and once I taught a Sunday-school class for a whole summer. Aunt Jamesina says I'll ruin Joe's career if I marry him, but I won't. I know I haven't much sense or sobriety, but I've got what is ever so much better—the knack of making people like me. There's a man in Bolingbroke who lisps and always testifies in prayer-meeting. He says, "'If you can't sign like an electric star, sign like a candlestick. I'll be Joe's little candlestick.' Phil, you're incorrigible. Well, I love you so much that I can't make nice, light, congratulatory little speeches. But I'm heart-glad of your happiness. I know. Those big gray eyes of yours are brimming over with real friendship, Anne. Some day I'll look the same way at you. You're going to marry Roy, aren't you, Anne?" My dear Philippa, did you ever hear of the famous Betty Baxter who refused a man before he'd axed her? I am not going to emulate that celebrated lady by either refusing or accepting anyone before he axes me. All Redmond knows that Roy is crazy about you," said Phil candidly. And you do love him, don't you, Anne? I—I I suppose so," said Anne reluctantly. She felt that she ought to be blushing while making such a confession. But she was not. On the other hand, she always blushed hotly when anyone said anything about Gilbert Blythe or Christine Stewart in her hearing. Gilbert Blythe and Christine Stewart were nothing to her, absolutely nothing. But Anne had given up trying to analyze the reason of her blushes. As for Roy, of course she was in love with him. Madly so. How could she help it? Was he not her ideal? 
Who could resist those glorious dark eyes and that pleading voice? Were not half the Redmond girls wildly envious? And what a charming sonnet he had sent her, with a box of violets, on her birthday! Anne knew every word of it by heart. It was very good stuff of its kind, too. Not exactly up to the level of Keats or Shakespeare—even Anne was not so deeply in love as to think that—but it was very tolerable magazine verse. And it was addressed to her—not to Laura, or Beatrice, or the Maid of Athens, but to her—Anne Shirley. To be told in rhythmical cadences that her eyes were stars of the morning, that her cheek had the flush it stole from the sunrise, that her lips were redder than the roses of paradise, was thrillingly romantic. Gilbert would never have dreamed of writing a sonnet to her eyebrows. But then Gilbert could see a joke. She had once told Roy a funny story, and he had not seen the point of it. She recalled the chummy laugh she and Gilbert had had together over it, and wondered uneasily if life with a man who had no sense of humour might not be somewhat uninteresting in the long run. But who could expect a melancholy, inscrutable hero to see the humorous side of things? It would be flatly unreasonable. End of chapter 27 All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Eight of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Read for LibriVox by Karen Savage. Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island. Chapter Twenty Eight. A June Evening. I wonder what it would be like to live in a world where it was always June, said Anne, as she came through the spice and bloom of the twilit orchard to the front doorsteps where Marilla and Mrs. Rachel were sitting, talking over Mrs. Sampson Coates' funeral, which they had attended that day. Dora sat between them, diligently studying her lessons, but Davy was sitting tailor-fashion in the grass, looking as gloomy and depressed as his single dimple would let him. "'You'd get tired of it,' said Marilla, with a sigh. "'I dare say. But just now I feel that it would take me a long time to get tired of it, if it were all as charming as today. Everything loves June. Davy, boy, why this melancholy November face in blossom time?' "'I'm just sick and tired of living,' said the youthful pessimist. At ten years? Dear me, how sad! I'm not making fun," said Davy with dignity. I'm dis—dis—discouraged, bringing out the big word with a valiant effort. Why and wherefore? asked Anne, sitting down beside him. Cause the new teacher that come when Mr. Holmes got sick gave me ten sums to do for Monday. It'll take me all day tomorrow to do them. It isn't fair to have to work Saturdays. Milty Bolter said he wouldn't do them, but Marilla says I've got to. I don't like Miss Carson a bit." "'Don't talk like that about your teacher, Davy Keith," said Mrs. Rachel severely. "'Miss Carson is a very fine girl. There is no nonsense about her.' "'That doesn't sound very attractive,' laughed Anne. "'I like people to have a little nonsense about them. But I'm inclined to have a better opinion of Miss Carson than you have. I saw her in prayer meeting last night, and she has a pair of eyes that can't always look sensible. Now, Davy boy, take heart of grace. Tomorrow will bring another day, and I'll help you with the sums as far as in me lies. Don't waste this lovely hour twixt light and dark worrying over arithmetic." "'Well, I won't,' said Davy, brightening up. "'If you help me with the sums, I'll have them done in time to go fishing with Milty. I wish old Aunt Atossa's funeral was tomorrow instead of today. I wanted to go to it, cause Milty said his mother said Aunt Atossa would be sure to rise up in her coffin and say sarcastic things to the folks that come to see her buried. But Marilla said she didn't. Poor Atossa laid in her coffin peaceful enough," said Mrs. Lynde solemnly. I never saw her look so pleasant before, that's what. Well, there weren't many tears shed over her, poor old soul. The Elisha Wrights are thankful to be rid of her, and I can't say I blame them a mite. It seems to me a most dreadful thing to go out of the world and not leave one person behind you who is sorry you are gone," 
said Anne, shuddering. "'Nobody except her parents ever loved poor Atossa, that's certain. Not even her husband,' averred Mrs. Lynde. She was his fourth wife. He'd sort of got into the habit of marrying. He only lived a few years after he married her. The doctor said he died of dyspepsia, but I shall always maintain that he died of Atossa's tongue, that's what. Poor soul! She always knew everything about her neighbors, but she never was very well acquainted with herself. Well, she's gone, anyhow, and I suppose the next excitement will be Diana's wedding." "'It seems funny and horrible to think of Diana's being married,' sighed Anne, hugging her knees and looking through the gap in the haunted wood to the light that was shining in Diana's room. "'I don't see what's horrible about it when she's doing so well,' said Mrs. Lynde emphatically. "'Fred Wright has a fine farm and he is a model young man. He certainly isn't the wild, dashing, wicked young man Diana once wanted to marry,' smiled Anne. "'Fred is extremely good.' That's just what he ought to be. Would you want Diana to marry a wicked man? Or marry one yourself?" Oh, no. I wouldn't want to marry anybody who was wicked. But I think I'd like it if he could be wicked and wouldn't. Now Fred is hopelessly good. You'll have more sense some day, I hope," said Marilla. Marilla spoke rather bitterly. She was grievously disappointed. She knew Anne had refused Gilbert Blythe. Avonlea gossip buzzed over the fact which had leaked out nobody knew how. Perhaps Charlie Sloane had guessed and told his guesses for truth. Perhaps Diana had betrayed it to Fred, and Fred had been indiscreet. At all events, it was known. Mrs. Blythe no longer asked Anne, in public or private, if she had heard lately from Gilbert, but passed her by with a frosty bow. Anne, who had always liked Gilbert's merry, young-hearted mother, was grieved in secret over this. Marilla said nothing, but Mrs. Lynde gave Anne many exasperated digs about it, until fresh gossip reached that worthy lady, through the medium of Moody Spurgeon MacPherson's mother, that Anne had another beau at college, who was rich and handsome and good all in one. After that Mrs. Rachel held her tongue, though she still wished in her inmost heart that Anne had accepted Gilbert. Riches were all very well, but even Mrs. Rachel, practical soul though she was, did not consider them the one essential. If Anne liked the handsome unknown better than Gilbert, there was nothing more to be said. But Mrs. Rachel was dreadfully afraid that Anne was going to make the mistake of marrying for money. Marilla knew Anne too well to fear this, but she felt that something in the universal scheme of things had gone sadly awry. "'What is to be will be,' said Mrs. Rachel gloomily, "'and what isn't to be happens sometimes. I can't help believing it's going to happen in Anne's case if Providence doesn't interfere, that's what.' Mrs. Rachel sighed. She was afraid Providence wouldn't interfere, and she didn't dare to. Anne had wandered down to the Dryad's bubble, and was curled up among the ferns at the root of the big, white birch where she and Gilbert had so often sat in summers gone by. He had gone into the newspaper office again when college closed, and Avonlea seemed very dull without him. He never wrote to her, and Anne missed the letters that never came. To be sure, Roy wrote twice a week. His letters were exquisite compositions which would have read beautifully in a memoir or biography. Anne felt herself more deeply in love with him than ever when she read them, but her heart never gave the queer, quick, painful bound at sight of his letters, which it had given one day when Mrs. Hiram Sloane had handed her out an envelope addressed in Gilbert's black, upright handwriting. Anne had hurried home to the East Gable and opened it eagerly, to find a typewritten copy of some college society report, only that and nothing more. Anne flung the harmless screed across her room and sat down to write an especially nice epistle to Roy. Diana was to be married in five more days. The gray house at Orchard Slope was in a turmoil of baking and brewing and boiling and stewing, for there was to be a big, old-timey wedding. Anne, of course, was to be bridesmaid, as had been arranged when they were twelve years old, and Gilbert was coming home from Kingsport to be best man. 
Anne was enjoying the excitement of the various preparations, but under it all she carried a little heartache. She was, in a sense, losing her dear old chum. Diana's new home would be two miles from Green Gables, and the old constant companionship could never be theirs again. Anne looked up at Diana's light and thought how it had beaconed to her for many years, but soon it would shine through the summer twilights no more. Two big, painful tears welled up in her gray eyes. Oh, she thought, how horrible it is that people have to grow up and marry and change. End of chapter 28. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Nine of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Read for LibriVox by Karen Savage. Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island. Chapter Twenty Nine. Diana's Wedding. After all, the only real roses are the pink ones," said Anne as she tied white ribbon around Diana's bouquet in the westward-looking gable at Orchard Slope. They are the flowers of love and faith. Diana was standing nervously in the middle of the room, arrayed in her bridal white her black curls frosted over with the film of her wedding veil. Anne had draped that veil, in accordance with the sentimental compact of years before. "'It's all pretty much as I used to imagine it long ago, when I wept over your inevitable marriage and our consequent parting,' she laughed. "'You are the bride of my dreams, Diana, with the lovely misty veil, and I am your bridesmaid. But alas, I haven't the puffed sleeves, though these short lace ones are even prettier.' Neither is my heart wholly breaking, nor do I exactly hate Fred." "'We're not really parting, Anne,' protested Diana. "'I'm not going far away. We'll love each other just as much as ever. We've always kept that oath of friendship we swore long ago, haven't we?' "'Yes. We've kept it faithfully. We've had a beautiful friendship, Diana. We've never marred it by one quarrel or coolness or unkind word. And I hope it will always be so. But things can't be quite the same after this. You'll have other interests. I'll just be on the outside. But such is life, as Mrs. Rachel says. Mrs. Rachel has given you one of her beloved knitted quilts of the tobacco-stripe pattern, and she says when I'm married she'll give me one, too." "'The mean thing about your getting married is that I won't be able to be your bridesmaid,' lamented Diana. "'I'm to be Phil's bridesmaid next June, when she marries Mr. Blake, and then I must stop, for you know the proverb, three times a bridesmaid, never a bride,' said Anne, peeping through the window over the pink and snow of the blossoming orchard beneath. Here comes the minister, Diana." "'Oh, Anne!' gasped Diana, suddenly turning very pale and beginning to tremble. "'Oh, Anne, I'm so nervous. I can't go through with it. Anne, I know I'm going to faint.' "'If you do, I'll drag you down to the rainwater hogshead and drop you in,' said Anne unsympathetically. "'Cheer up, dearest. Getting married can't be so very terrible when so many people survive the ceremony. See how cool and composed I am and take courage. Wait till your turn comes, Miss Anne. Oh, Anne, I hear Father coming upstairs. Give me my bouquet. Is my veil right? Am I very pale? You look just lovely. Di, darling, kiss me good-bye for the last time. Diana Barry will never kiss me again. Diana Wright will, though. There. Mother's calling. Come." Following the simple, old-fashioned way in vogue then, Anne went down to the parlour on Gilbert's arm. They met at the top of the stairs, for the first time since they had left Kingsport, for Gilbert had arrived only that day. Gilbert shook hands courteously. He was looking very well though, as Anne instantly noted, rather thin. He was not pale. There was a flush on his cheek that had burned into it as Anne came along the hall towards him, in her soft, white dress with lilies of the valley in the shining masses of her hair. As they entered the crowded parlour together a little murmur of admiration ran around the room. "'What a fine-looking pair they are!' whispered the impressible Mrs. Rachel to Marilla. 
Fred ambled in alone with a very red face, and then Diana swept in on her father's arm. She did not faint, and nothing untoward occurred to interrupt the ceremony. Feasting and merry-making followed. Then, as the evening waned, Fred and Diana drove away through the moonlight to their new home, and Gilbert walked with Anne to Green Gables. Something of their old comradeship had returned during the informal mirth of the evening. Oh, it was nice to be walking over that well-known road with Gilbert again. The night was so very still that one should have been able to hear the whisper of roses in blossom, the laughter of daisies, the piping of grasses, many sweet sounds all tangled up together. The beauty of moonlight on familiar fields irradiated the world. "'Can't we take a ramble up Lover's Lane before you go in?' asked Gilbert, as they crossed the bridge over the Lake of Shining Waters, in which the moon lay like a great drowned blossom of gold. Anne assented readily. Lover's Lane was a veritable path in a fairyland that night—a shimmering, mysterious place, full of wizardry in the white-woven enchantment of moonlight. There had been a time when such a walk with Gilbert through Lover's Lane would have been far too dangerous. But Roy and Christine had made it very safe now. Anne found herself thinking a good deal about Christine as she chatted lightly to Gilbert. She had met her several times before leaving Kingsport, and had been charmingly sweet to her. Christine had also been charmingly sweet. Indeed, they were a most cordial pair. But for all that, their acquaintance had not ripened into friendship. Evidently Christine was not a kindred spirit. "'Are you going to be in Avonlea all summer?' asked Gilbert. "'No, I'm going down east to Valley Road next week. Esther Haythorne wants me to teach for her through July and August. They have a summer term in that school, and Esther isn't feeling well, so I'm going to substitute for her. In one way I don't mind. Do you know, I'm beginning to feel a little bit like a stranger in Avonlea now. It makes me sorry, but it's true. It's quite appalling to see the number of children who have shot up into big boys and girls—really young men and women—these past two years. Half of my pupils are grown up. It makes me feel awfully old to see them in the places you and I or our mates used to fill." Anne laughed and sighed. She felt very old and mature and wise, which showed how young she was. She told herself that she longed greatly to go back to those dear merry days when life was seen through a rosy mist of hope and illusion, and possessed an indefinable something that had passed away forever. Where was it now, the glory and the dream? So wags the world away quoted Gilbert practically, and a trifle absently. Anne wondered if he were thinking of Christine. Oh, Avonlea was going to be so lonely now, with Diana gone. End of chapter 29 All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter 30 of Anne of the Island by Lucy Maud Montgomery Read for LibriVox by Karen Savage Visit LibriVox.org for more information or to volunteer. Anne of the Island. Chapter 30. Mrs. Skinner's Romance. Anne stepped off the train at Valley Road Station and looked about to see if anyone had come to meet her. She was to board with a certain Miss Janet Sweet, but she saw no one who answered in the least to her preconception of that lady, as formed from Esther's letter. The only person in sight was an elderly woman, sitting in a wagon with mail-bags piled around her. Two hundred would have been a charitable guess at her weight. Her face was as round and red as a harvest moon, and almost as featureless. She wore a tight black cashmere dress, made in the fashion of ten years ago, a little dusty black straw hat trimmed with bows of yellow ribbon, and faded black lace mitts. "'Here! You!' she called, waving her whip at Anne. "'Are you the new Valley Road school, ma'am?' "'Yes.' "'Well, I thought so. Valley Road is noted for its good-looking school, ma'ams, just as Millersville is noted for its humly ones. Janet Sweet asked me this morning if I could bring you out. 
I said certain I kin, if she don't mind being scrunched up some. This rig of mine's kinder small for the mail-bags, and I'm some heftier than Thomas. Just wait, miss, till I shift these bags a bit, and I'll tuck you in somehow. It's only two miles to Janet's. Her next-door neighbor's hired boy's coming for your trunk tonight. My name is Skinner, Amelia Skinner." Anne was eventually tucked in, exchanging amused smiles with herself during the process. "'Jog along, black mare,' commanded Mrs. Skinner, gathering up the reins in her pudgy hands. "'This is my first trip on the mail route. Thomas wanted to hoe his turnips today, so he asked me to come. So I just sat down and took a standin' up snack and started. I sort of like it. Of course it's rather tedious. Part of the time I sits and thinks, and the rest I just sits. Jog along, black mare. I want to get home early. Thomas is terrible lonesome when I'm away. You see, we haven't been married very long." "'Oh,' said Anne politely. "'Just a month. Thomas courted me for quite a spell, though. It was real romantic.' Anne tried to picture Mrs. Skinner on speaking terms with romance, and failed. "'Oh,' she said again. "'Yes. You see, there was another man after me. Jog along, black mare. I'd been a widder so long folks had given up expecting me to marry again. But when my daughter—she's a schoolma'am like you—went out west to teach I felt real lonesome. I wasn't no wise sought against the idea. By and by Thomas began to come up and so did the other feller—William Obadiah Seaman, his name was. For a long time I couldn't make up my mind which of them to take, and they kept coming and coming and I kept worrying. You see, W. O. was rich. He had a fine place and carried considerable style. He was by far the best match. Jog along, black mare." "'Why didn't you marry him?' asked Anne. "'Well, you see, he didn't love me,' answered Mrs. Skinner solemnly. Anne opened her eyes widely and looked at Mrs. Skinner, but there was not a glint of humor on that lady's face. Evidently Mrs. Skinner saw nothing amusing in her own case. He'd been a widder man for three years, and his sister kept house for him. Then she got married, and he just wanted someone to look after his house. It was worth looking after, too, mind you that. It's a handsome house. Jog along, black mare. As for Thomas, he was poor, and if his house didn't leak in dry weather it was about all that could be said for it, though it looks kind of picturesque. But you see, I love Thomas, and I didn't care one red cent for W.O., so I argued it out with myself. Sarah Crow, say I, my first was a crow. You can marry your rich man if you like, but you won't be happy. Folks can't get along together in this world without a bit of love. You'd just better tie up to Thomas, for he loves you and you love him and nothing else ain't gonna do you. Jog along, black mare. So I told Thomas I'd take him. All the time I was getting ready I never dared drive past W.O.'s place for fear the sight of that fine house of his would put me back in the Swithers again. But now I never think of it at all, and I'm just that comfortable and happy with Thomas. Jog along, black mare." "'How did William Obadiah take it?' queried Anne. "'Oh, he rumpused a bit. But he's going to see a skinny old maid in Millersville now, and I guess she'll take him fast enough. She'll make him a better wife than his first did. W.O. never wanted to marry her. He just asked her to marry him cause his father wanted him to, never dreaming but that she'd say no. But mind you, she said yes. There was a predicament for you. Jog along, black mare." She was a great housekeeper, but most awful mean. She wore the same bonnet for eighteen years. Then she got a new one, and W.O. met her on the road and didn't know her. Jog along, black mare. I feel that I'd a narrow escape. I might have married him and been most awful miserable, like my poor cousin Jane Ann. Jane Ann married a rich man she didn't care anything about, and she hasn't the life of a dog. She come to see me last week and says, says she, Sarah Skinner, I envy you. I'd rather live in a little hut on the side of the road with a man I was fond of than in my big house with the one I've got. Jane Ann's man ain't such a bad sort, nother, though he's so contrary that he wears his fur coat when the thermometer's at ninety. The only way to get him to do anything is to coax him to do the opposite. But there ain't any love to smooth things down, and it's a poor way of living. Jog along, black mare. 
There's Janet's place in the hollow. Wayside, she calls it. Quite picturesque you, ain't it? I guess you'll be glad to get out of this with all them mail-bags jamming round you." "'Yes, but I've enjoyed my drive with you very much,' said Anne sincerely. "'Get away now,' said Mrs. Skinner, highly flattered. "'Wait till I tell Thomas that. He always feels dreadful tickled when I get a compliment. Jog along, black mare. Well, here we are. I hope you'll get on well in the school, miss. There's a shortcut to it through the mosh back at Janet's. If you take that way, be awful careful. If you once got stuck in that black mud, you'd be sucked right down and never seen or heard tell of again till the day of judgment, like Adam Palmer's cow. Jog along, black mare. End of chapter 30. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.